The Apostle Paul grew up in a Jewish family, but his mother may not have influenced him as did Timothy's mother and grandmother. In his second letter to Timothy, while encouraging his son in the faith to continue in the things he had taught him, Paul noted that from childhood, Timothy had known the sacred writings, which had given him the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In the same letter, he also stated, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And in Acts, we read that when Paul returned to Derby and Lister on his second missionary journey, behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. Apparently, Timothy's mother and probably his grandmother had become Christians on Paul's first visit to Lystra. Timothy may not have become a Christian at the same time, but when Paul returned, he was known as a disciple who was the son of a believer. And I think it's safe to assume his mother and grandmother played a very significant role in his becoming a disciple. Paul, however, gave credit to no one other than the Lord himself for his conversion, and for his becoming a minister of the gospel of Christ. As we noted last week, Paul was adamant about the fact that the gospel he preached came to him independently of any other man, and I can assume woman there as well. He said, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul received the gospel apart from others, and he began his ministry apart from others. So if there was ever a man who could stand alone in the ministry, it certainly would be the Apostle Paul. He wasn't one of the original 12, and he wasn't beholding to them for the message he proclaimed. The resurrected Lord had personally called him to be an apostle, taught him, and sent him away from his fellow Jews to the Gentiles. After his conversion, he took the gospel to his homeland and preached by himself throughout the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And he was apparently content to minister there. But while Paul was leading Gentiles to the Lord in his homeland, other Christians from Cyprus and Cyrene had started sharing the gospel with Gentiles in Antioch. And the apostles in Jerusalem heard of it. They sent Barnabas, a native of Cyprus, to investigate. And when he found a large number of Gentile believers in Antioch, he decided he needed help teaching them and went looking for Paul. Barnabas had apparently kept tabs on what Paul was doing and the success he was having ministering to Gentiles. And Paul knew Barnabas. It was Barnabas 
who had encouraged the apostles in Jerusalem to at least meet with Paul when he had gone there three years after his conversion. When Barnabas expressed his need for Paul's help, Paul was willing to do so. They then worked together for an entire year teaching the new Christians in Antioch. In fact, it was at Antioch that the disciples, the believers, were first called Christians. So Paul, the independent preacher of the gospel, found himself working with other preachers and teachers, something he would pretty much continue doing throughout the rest of his ministry. Now, I have to confess that I tend to be a bit more like the independent Paul than Paul the co-laborer. Now, being a firstborn, I've always been rather independent by nature. And as I mentioned last week, I knew I was going to be a preacher when I was six years old. I grew up in the church and was a leader in the youth group. I was close to a youth minister during my teens, and he encouraged me to preach in a preacher boy contest at Lincoln, but I was never really mentored by anyone and never have been. When I went to Bible college, I knew why I was there and couldn't wait to get out. I continued as a youth minister for a couple of years after graduation, giving Marilyn a time to graduate from high school, (laughs) and then went to Kansas. Two years later, we came to Chatham, and we've been ministering here now for nearly 48 years. The direction my ministry took was influenced by a conference that stressed the importance of developing family relationships in the church. And I committed myself to preaching expository sermons through Bible books after hearing about Ray Steadman, reading his mimeographed sermons and spending a couple of weeks with him at a preacher's conference in California. But other than that, conferences, conventions, and gatherings of preachers have not played much of a role in my ministry. I did meet with Chatham preachers for lunch, and we worked together on community services and projects until it was decided there was no longer a need for us to meet together. And when Christian church preachers in the area used to meet for fellowship, I always made an effort to attend. I'm not particularly close to anyone in the ministry other than those of you with whom I labor here, those we support, and those who have gone out from us into various ministries. And while I do realize the danger of being an ivory tower preacher who holds himself up in the study and is oblivious to what's going on elsewhere, I do put a high priority on study time. And I'm much more concerned about what I'm going to say to you on Sunday morning than on what's being said from other pulpits, if anyone else still uses one. I do try to stay abreast on what's happening in the church at large, but I often find myself becoming more discouraged by what I read than encouraged or challenged. I say all this to let you know that Paul's willingness to leave what he was doing so he could assist Barnabas in a ministry in Antioch 
and his willingness to go back to Jerusalem and seek the support and fellowship of the apostles probably speaks more to me than it does you. But I think it will do us all good to rethink the need for an extended church family this morning and to be honest about the challenges that come from family life. We begin with the need for family. Galatians chapter 2. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Getting back to Jerusalem had apparently not been a top priority in Paul's ministry. But after an interval of 14 years, probably from his first visit three years after his conversion, he went back with Barnabas. In spite of the lapse of time, Paul's going up to Jerusalem demonstrated the fact that he did recognize the existence and importance of an extended church family. And he even says when he went, he submitted to them the gospel he preached among the Gentiles. Now that almost seems to contradict what he's been telling the Galatians, that the gospel he preached had been given to him directly by Jesus Christ and that no one could alter it. But he's not suggesting that he offered it up to them so they could change it. Only that he offered it up to them so they could confirm that they did indeed preach the same gospel. And when he said he privately submitted his gospel to those who were of reputation for fear that he might be running or had run in vain, he wasn't saying he was afraid he had been wrong. He's simply acknowledging that some were hindering the advance of the gospel by insisting that his message differed significantly from the one preached by the rest of the family, particularly the apostles in Jerusalem. He wanted to assure them and everyone else that they were all on the same page. The Judaizers were casting doubts on Paul's gospel, and the Galatians were deserting the grace of Christ because of it. Paul recognized that perceived differences of opinion on doctrinal issues within the family could destroy the effectiveness of his ministry. His ministry. Or if the common perception is that there are major disagreements between those who preach the gospel, people will assume there's no way for them to know the truth. And they will tend to dismiss what anyone has to say. That's why it is important for those in ministry to examine each other's teaching and hopefully find common ground. Suspicions grow when we don't communicate, and differences are exaggerated when we are isolated from each other. That is true for those in pulpits, and it's true for those in pews as well. Now, I think we all recognize the importance of feeling 
like a family within the context of a church body. But we must not draw our family circle so small that we build unnecessary walls between us and brothers and sisters in other family units. We don't want to end up like the proverbial churches that sat on three corners of an intersection. With their windows open on a Sunday morning, one was singing, Will there be any stars in my crown? The second was singing, No, not one. And the third, That will be glory for me. (laughs) We're family. And we must not cut ourselves off from the larger family of God and do our own thing with no regard for what others are saying or doing. Paul recognized that, and so must we. That's not to suggest, however, that doing so is without risks. There are always risks in family life, verses 3 through 5. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Titus isn't mentioned in the book of Acts, but we learn here that he accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. And in the letter Paul wrote to him, he is referred to as Paul's true child in the common faith. He was a Gentile, a Greek, that Paul led to Christ. And he became a much-beloved and much-dependent-upon co-worker of the Apostle Paul. When he accompanied Paul to Jerusalem, however, he became a source of considerable controversy. Being a Gentile, Titus had not been circumcised. And this was a lightning rod issue in the church at the time. Paul, no doubt, realized that taking Titus into the stronghold of the Judaizers would be a problem, but he took him anyway. In fact, he may have intentionally taken him as a test case. And he quickly became one. The issue wasn't raised by the apostles, however. It was raised by false brethren who had sneaked into their meeting. They weren't real disciples of Christ. They were troublemakers who had infiltrated the church. J.B. Phillips says they were pseudo-Christians who wormed their way into our meeting to spy out the liberty we enjoy in Christ Jesus. And as expected, they were insisting that Titus be circumcised. Now, Paul knew who they were, and he no doubt knew they would be there. Again, he may have even counted on it so he could make a case for the truth of the gospel. But even if he hadn't intentionally set the stage, he was obviously willing to risk a confrontation with hypocrites for the sake of fellowship with true believers. Hypocrites couldn't keep him away. 
and troublemaking hypocrites in other churches shouldn't keep us from seeking fellowship with family members who may be found there as well. What Paul may not have expected, however, was the extent of the pressure that we brought to bear. It's quite possible that the hypocrites had affected even the apostles and their judgment. The text isn't clear on who was doing all the compelling. The apostles may have even urged Paul to concede for the sake of peace in the church. But Paul knew that the truth of the gospel could not be compromised, and he did not believe in unity at any cost. He wanted unity and fellowship with other believers, but he knew there were limits. He knew there would be times when a stand would have to be taken and disagreement and confrontation risked because even true believers will not always agree on everything in the church. There's going to be conflict. It's inevitable. And some sibling rivalry should be expected in any family. Hopefully most of it can be worked out. But the more we get involved with family members, the more chances there are for conflicts to arise. Now, some don't think it's worth it. And that's why they keep everyone in church, even their own church, at arm's length. That's why some preachers avoid all contact with other preachers. But Paul knew it was worth it, and so must we. Besides, what Paul says next shows that conflict in the church can be minimized if we'll simply acknowledge that there's room for diversity within the church family. We don't all have to have identical ministries or even agree on everything to get along with each other. Continuing in Galatians 2. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. On the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectively worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also in the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Now, the construction of that is admittedly confusing. It appears that Paul got started and then went off on a tangent or two. And since he is dictating the letter and not auto-correcting it on a laptop, it's a bit rough. But I think we get his point. Those he refers to as being of high reputation, the reputed pillars in the church, were James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter and John. And the Judaizers exalted them over Paul. And Paul recognized their standing, noting, of course, that God shows no partiality. 
His point in acknowledging their standing in the eyes of the Judaizers, however, is to make it clear that the ones they deemed most important found it unnecessary to add anything to the gospel Paul was preaching. That's what he means when he says that they contributed nothing to him. They found his message lacking in nothing essential. They could see that he had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised and they to the circumcised, but that they were not preaching different gospels. They were preaching the same message, just to different target audiences. And while that might alter their approach a bit, it would not and could not alter the gospel message. And they acknowledged that Paul was most effective working with Gentiles and Peter with Jews. They recognized that Paul had a special gift, a grace given to him for working with Gentiles. And they gave to him and to Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They did, however, agree that he should go his way and they theirs. They realized that they had been called to different ministries, but that there could be unity in diversity. They didn't have to actually physically work together to support each other or to recognize the validity of one another's ministry. Not all parts of the body are intended to function the same way, but they must work in harmony if the body is to function effectively. So yes, we do need each other. And we can work together even if we don't do everything the same way or even agree on everything. This is a real message here for us. A message for us as a body of believers. Again, as I mentioned, there are some who are really hesitant to get to know their brothers and sisters because they know the better you know somebody the greater the chances you're going to disagree on some things. But you'll never really grow to love your brother and sister if you don't know them. You've got to take the risks. And I have to admit, I tend to be a little isolated from others. I always have been. But we have to be willing to acknowledge that there are other bodies of believers all around us. We may not agree on everything. We may do things differently. The audience they appeal to may be different than we are. I was reminded of that several years ago when I attended a a service down in somewhere. Where was it, honey? You forgot. What? Myrtle Beach. Yes, Myrtle Beach. We went in there. It was all, you know, blackened, lights were flashing, smoke was roaring, everybody was standing up, which always annoys me, and uh, they were all excited, and they were jumping and singing and carrying on, and the guys and girls on the platform were, they were like rock stars, and I'm going, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Then the preacher got up, and, you know, he was wearing his skinny jeans and whatever else modern preachers wear, and... uh, he started preaching. I'm going, he's, he's doing a pretty good job. Surprisingly, he was preaching the gospel. 
The same one I preach. And then I was blown away when they announced that they were going to have a baptism in the ocean that afternoon and 23 were being baptized. I said, thank you, Lord. <laughs> now, I didn't bring back lights and smoke machines. But I acknowledge we're all part of the same body. And let's celebrate. Let's celebrate the fact that we're family and that we share faith in the God who loves us and has called us. This may be our niche for ministry, and I've accepted that, and I, I love it. But let's never forget we have family members outside these walls, okay? Family life has its risks. as risks in our own homes and our sisters and brothers and all that. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Paul acknowledged that. There's a need for fellowship in the body of Christ. Fellowship within a congregation and fellowship between congregations. As I said, getting involved with family does involve taking risks. It might even lead to an occasional family fight. But it's worth the risk. It's worth the risk. And we must never think that every church, that every one in ministry should be just like us. There's as much room for diversity in our spiritual family as there is in our physical family. Let's just be glad we're a part of the family of God. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for making us family. We're grateful for what we read in Scripture, the challenges that even the apostles faced as they tried to work together and struggled to sort out their differences and acknowledge the validity of each other's ministry. But they knew they were in it together. Help us to maintain that same confidence in our brothers and sisters. Help us to pray for each other. Help us to pray for other churches. Help us to be what you've called us to be, a family of God that goes much broader than one little church outside of Chatham. I'm thankful for the way you've blessed us. Let us be a blessing to others. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.